All right, today I'm just going to say some things. Uh, no fact checking. Please, no fact checking. Just listen. Just go with it. Don't Google any of this shit. Just listen to the podcast. Lean back. Enjoy it. But no fact checking. All right. The first photograph ever was taken in the 1820s. Think about this for a moment. The first photograph from a camera that we know about taken in about the 1820s. Eh? Here's what that means. In the history of humankind, we don't know what anybody really looked like until the 1820s. I know, I know. You could say, what about the great painters? What about the most gifted painters who are doing portraits of people? Come on. Don't go there. It's a very small percentage of people that commissioned the greatest artists of the time to paint them so they could put it in a frame in their study. It's a weird concept to think photographs meant, now we know what humans are going to look like. And I know what photos evolved into with 1,000 selfies per day per human today. It's a little different than what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about a few simple photographs of a human being left behind so their family will know what they looked like. Even if it's just, you know, the oldest of old school photographs, a black and white picture of a family frowning in a dark room wearing formal wear, but it's not the kind of formal wear we have today. It's more of that Civil War looking formal wear. Valet parkers and caterers of the 1800s kind of formal wear. Okay, so follow me with this. If the current form of Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years, we don't know what most of them looked like. Isn't that a weird thing to think about? Isn't that a shame that there was somebody in the 1700s who died and nobody ever really knew what that person looked like? But that person had a kid and that person had a kid. And then at some point there was a new kid in the 1820s who was like, you know what? Photographs are fun. What did dad look like? I forget. What did grandpa look like? Nope. Nothing. There is no visual documentation of these humans. 1820s is very recent. Think about that for a moment in the grand scheme of things. The 1820s for the first photos to be around. Very recent. So we have no clue, really, what Plato looked like. You could sculpt these guys. You could paint these guys. We have no clue what old Bill Shakespeare really looked like. We don't know. Napoleon Bonaparte? Just a guess. King Tut? Absolutely not. Emperor Justinian? We have no clue. Jesus Christ? I know we've seen a lot of art with Jesus, but we don't know what he looked like. May have had acne. Who knows? We don't know that. Nobody's going to commission a painter and say, yeah, paint all these pimples and zits. Paint all these scars. Yeah, paint my receding hairline. That's why we can't trust any of the artists who are capturing what people looked like before the photograph. So that's really visual history. Visual history for me, because the photo is far superior than the painting, even though I know we had great painters throughout the Renaissance, like our good friend Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio. Don't mix them up like I do. Donatello, Michelangelo, Raphael. If you just name the turtles slowly, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, in front of a classroom during the Renaissance, none of the students are going to be thinking about painters. They're just going to be thinking about turtles. It's very weird the first time I say. And then Donatello with his famous sculpture. They're just picturing a turtle eating pizza, taking orders from Splinter, the big rat. That'd be amazing to know that you're only going to be remembered 
by the artists that painted you. And art, just like anything, had evolved. The first artists that were ever painting people were probably really bad at it. And it was the only visual depiction to capture a person's entire existence on planet Earth. Think about the first artists. I'm not talking about the talented Renaissance artists. Even before the medieval times, the Dark Ages, go to the first artists. What the fuck were they doing? You know, you try to find a picture of Grandpa. What did Grandpa look like? I'm so curious about our family history. And they're like, well, you know that stick figure on the cave wall? That cousin Earl chiseled? Yeah, he probably looked a little bit like that. No clue. No clue. No freaking clue. Go back further. Let's go back further to written history. All right, this is the old prehistoric conversation. You got to love that word prehistoric. Just basically, we're throwing in the towel. Yeah, we don't know. At that point, just take a guess. Have faith that, you know, the planet looked like this. Maybe the planet looked like that. Ask an archaeologist. As if it's that easy to just hunt down an archaeologist and say, tell me all the theories about prehistoric life. But apparently, writing. You know, the other way to keep history. It's not all visual, as we know. Writing. It only goes back 4,000 years-ish. I gotta add ish to everything I talk about when it comes to world history. I don't think we have such specific dates of these eras. Like the Bronze Era. So Bronze Era. We could say that's when things were really being chiseled. And we were really starting to keep history. Keep records. Important records of people and conflicts and issues. And revolutions and transformations. All of this stuff. The first time writing was invented. And people said, let's write about what's going on so in the future, they'll know what we did. It probably sounded innovative. Writing? What do you mean, writing? And that, of course, evolved into trolls on Twitter. You fill in the gaps. That's your job. I'm not filling in the gaps. So if you were alive during that transition, let's just say that was your lifetime, before writing and after writing, And you were curious about your great-grandpa. What was he all about? There's nothing. These early, 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 early humans that I sometimes think about, they lived in the wrong era. There's no photos of them. There's really nothing written about them. Not to say their life wasn't worth living, but that would be weird to know that you're going to die and nobody would have a clue who you were. Nobody. Not even your grandkids, your great-grandkids, your great-great-grandkids, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids would have no clue because nobody wrote anything about you unless you were in the recent history. The Sumerians, you like that? I passed my C-set. The Sumerians, who invented perhaps one of the first forms of writing, or maybe the Egyptians with their hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics, also a pretty good rap group. But let's not get into hip-hop yet. You know I'll get there, but not yet. Right now, we're just ranting about history and weird thoughts going way back. And I mean way back. So there's only a certain number of humans that are remembered. If you think about the grand scope of history, 4,000 years ago is not that long ago. For a world that has been around, what, 5, 6 billion years? 4,000 is a blip. 4,000 years ago. Writing would be the only way to capture anything, to remember anybody. And then the 1820s, that's when you really started taking photos. So we're lucky to be alive right now. If that has great meaning to us, 
as the humans of 2018, this era, whatever you want to call this era, for us to know, at least when we die, at least when we get into that cozy coffin, they're going to have a lot of photos of us. And they could read our writings if we leave any writings behind or anybody wrote about us. It can all be read. Maybe there's a very small audience that would care, but still that small audience might be all that matters, right? You have a kid. What's the point of having a kid? I know they fulfill your life, but they also pass on your genes. There's probably some innate reasons why we are compelled to have children that are almost indescribable. Why did I want to have children? They seem cute. They seem fun. They're funny. They make you laugh. We all know they're a lot of work, but what really makes us do it? I guess there's something in our DNA that says, yeah, continue this. Continue this DNA. Continue these genes. Perhaps that's the ego in us. Let's say it's so important for this family to continue. Let's keep growing branches off this family tree. Keep planting the roots to grow more trees of this family that just needs to keep going and going and exist forever. However, when you study history and you study all these wars and all these conflicts and all these famines and holocausts and oppressions and mass slaughters, you realize how many families just floated away, no longer exist. So we're lucky. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're feeling unlucky today, bullshit. You're lucky. You're very lucky. It's true. With the amount of things that could have destroyed your family tree by now, taking your family tree and just put it in the old Wood chipper. Think about how many family trees went into the wood chipper. <coughs> I should not do that impression anymore. That's not good on the throat. But you get what I mean. We're all survivors of something. You trace back your lineage far enough, you can absolutely circle a survivor. Somebody that had to flee from somewhere. Probably everybody, right? Like I said, don't fact check this. Just enjoy. Just enjoy the stream of bullshit flowing out of your speakers or earbuds right now. You know what else is interesting? Because there's no footage of any of this. There's no footage of any of this. When I'm talking about prehistoric, Bronze Age, Sumerians create writing. Most of history is not filmed either. So as a world history teacher, we start the year, I start talking about the Greeks and Romans. There's no real footage of Cleisthenes and Pericles inventing voting and democracy. There's no footage. There's no YouTube viral video of Socrates being executed. However, we have great documentaries. And in these documentaries, follow me on this one, there's always dramatizations of, yeah, what it might have looked like. You know, the filmmaker goes, yeah, I guess... Maybe they wore these clothes. There's a lot of guesswork. Don't ever let historians tell you exactly how it was. They're just educated guesses. Yeah, and I assume he might have looked like this. Yeah. And then they have to hire actors in Hollywood who are going to play the characters of history, ancient history. And these are just guys living in Hollywood waiting on tables hoping to get the call that they're going to be in a movie. But instead, they're like, you know something? Uh, we need to cast Cleisthenes. Can we get you to just wear this robe and walk along the beach and then throw a pebble into the bucket and we'll say that's how voting was invented? And look very serious. I want you to have a very serious, pensive look on your face. And then I show that to a classroom full of kids, 15, 16-year-olds, and they're like, yeah, all right. I mean, they know it's a dramatization in a documentary. They know it's a reenactment. But who the hell are these actors? 
And what are they even studying? You know, method actors, I have to become this person. What are you studying? You're probably just going with the stupid face that you saw somebody make in another documentary that hired these reenactment actors. These actors don't want to be doing that shit. These actors want to be in action movies. The French Revolution, the History Channel's French Revolution documentary, it's filled with a bunch of actors just playing make-believe and saying, yeah, I guess Marie Antoinette may have made this face. Yeah, I guess King Louis used to sit in this bed and maybe when he was eating, he, he made this face. Or did he make this facial expression? And then Robespierre, when he would get mad, would, would he raise an eyebrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do that. And action. Documentary dramatization history actors. So in our mind's eye, when I say all these characters from ancient history that were not photographed, perhaps they were painted or sculpted, I love the fact that there's still modern day actors trying to capture the essence of something that we don't know anything about. A lot of guessing. Even Daniel Day-Lewis when he played Lincoln. By the way, that was boring. Can we say that? Like Peter Griffin in Family Guy. It insists upon itself. It's a good episode, by the way. If you're a Family Guy fanatic like my wife, and she honestly can quote every single Family Guy of all time, it's one of the great skills in our household. Is there a way to monetize that? That my wife knows every Family Guy of all time, every scene, all the plot development. She could just recite it. But there was a great Family Guy. I think the family's drowning in their living room for some reason. And then Peter, you know, one of the last things he wants to say as he believes he's dying with his family is the Godfather. You know, I didn't love it. It insists upon itself. And you go, what does that mean? But it kind of captures what he means perfectly. There are some movies that have such intense and great reputations that you just feel the need to say, yeah, I loved it. Lincoln. Oh, was Daniel Day-Lewis great? You know, he's a method actor and he acts like Lincoln the whole day, even before the director says action. And after he says cut, Daniel Day-Lewis continues to act like Lincoln. All right. Who are we to say he played Lincoln perfectly? Did you meet Abraham? Did you know him? Are there enough historians telling us exactly how he walked, exactly how he talked, exactly how he undressed? Sorry, I don't know if there was a lot of Lincoln undressing. I saw the movie. I don't think there's much Lincoln undressing. But then Daniel Day-Lewis, who takes himself so seriously, a true thespian of the arts, He's the type of guy who at an award show would give a real dull speech, you know, a self-gratifying, I'm so important, just ego flowing speech. How angry do I sound at actors? I need to ease off that because I actually love actors. If I saw an actor, even a B-list actor at the airport, I would be like, whoa. I actually once saw Kirk Cameron at the airport in Phoenix and I was like, whoa, like Elvis was in the building. It's just Kirk Cameron, which is the ninth Growing Pains reference. In the history of the Here We Go podcast, let's see how many times I could reference Growing Pains. Who else have I seen in the airport? This is a fun game. Festus Azili, former warrior center at Baggage Claim. All right, I've gone from Kirk Cameron to Festus Azili. Festus, hey, Festus. He was only about three feet taller than everybody with his Beats by Dre headphones. Did I approach? No, I didn't. Who else have I seen? Ask yourself that question right now and just tweet at me at jrosenberg957. I act like this is such a great forum question. Who have you seen in an airport? I've seen a lot of college teams. I've seen, oh, this is actually a funny story. I was once sitting with the BYU volleyball team, probably headed towards Denver, Colorado. 
yeah, I think I was in the Denver airport, maybe leaving Denver, and the BYU volleyball team, the girls' volleyball team was in there. And what do we know about BYU? Mormons. And what do we know about Mormons? Polite. They don't break laws. Strict set of rules to follow. But I was sitting so close to a couple of the girls on the team, and I overheard one say to the other, I'm so sick of your shit. Would you just shut the fuck up? And it was so wonderful. Because I figured the conversations would be like, Elizabeth, you played so well over the weekend. I'm so proud of you. Not to say I'm profiling, but you know what I mean. Don't you think Mormons are pleasant people for the most part? Don't they seem that way? In my opinion, they do. The Mormons I've met are very nice, very sweet people. However, these two girls from the BYU volleyball team, they were not happy with each other. And they were not in the mood to avoid profanity, which made me very happy. Just shut the fuck up, one of them told the other. And I said, yeah. That's BYU Athletics, folks. What the hell was I talking about? I got off on such a tangent right there, I now have to play Rewind in the Brain, which is never easy. You know when you're having insomnia at night and your mind just bounces around to too many topics and you're like, where did I even begin? That's how I feel right now, except I'm still recording, I believe. Okay, Kirk Cameron, airport. Festus Azili, who have you seen in the airport? B-list actors, I don't hate actors. There you go. It just sounds like I do. All right, moving on. Let's move, let's move, let's move. We only got so much time, huh? All right, my observations of teenagers is an underlying theme of this podcast. Teens right now like the show Friends, and I think Netflix has revolutionized a fan base for these shows that don't feel so long ago to me. Like, Friends was the late 90s. It probably hit its peak in the late 90s, yet now it's 2018. So most of the students in the high school I work at who talk about Chandler and Ross and Monica and Phoebe, it would be the equivalent to me perhaps talking about, like, Taxi. Louis De Palma, Christopher Lloyd, Judd Hirsch, Andy Kaufman. And I could probably make a case that Taxi is the greatest show of all time. Watch one episode of Taxi. Just one. Danny DeVito, as good as it gets. And I know I've said the great shows on my list like Seinfeld, The Office, The Cosby Show. The Cosby Show. Wow, it's tough to remember that as such a winner. Bill Cosby sentenced to what? Three to ten years today? Do you listen to this podcast for breaking celebrity news? But yeah, Bill Cosby, they finally got him. He's 81 years old. They finally got him. He's been raping women for so many years and they finally got him. That took a little long. Took a little too long. Got a little worried that his celebrity status would get him off. But that's good. It sends a message that, you know what, you can't rape innocent women. Hey, good. Good to know. No matter how famous and rich you are, you can't do it. Perhaps that sets a new precedent. It's amazing how many Hollywood actors just do as they please with no repercussions. Until now, they got Cosby. Good. I don't think the Cosby show is coming to Netflix anytime soon. But what Netflix has done is kind of cool. It's created this forum where I can now talk about these shows that I loved. You know, some students are watching Cheers. I go, how do you know about Cheers? It's on Netflix. They just stream everything with ease. They stream everything with ease. They know all the plot lines to Friends. They ask me. I had a few students ask me, what's your favorite episode of Friends? I don't really remember. It doesn't feel like it's that long ago. And I thought Friends was a little overrated. I thought it was good. You know, like a B plus. I didn't think it was an A. Is that blasphemy? But it's so popular now. It must look so weird or sound so weird to these teenagers to hear laugh tracks. 
There's barely any shows anymore with laugh tracks. Laugh tracks are so odd. Just telling the viewers when something is funny. I have not watched a show with a laugh track in so long that it would now be distracting. You know, Seinfeld, that's probably the last show I saw with a laugh track, just a rerun. It was annoying me. And at the time, it was just normal. At the time, it was just, this is how shows sound. Jerry makes a joke, thunderous laughter. Kramer comes in the room, applause, thunderous laughter. Elaine pushes Kramer, thunderous laughter. That'd be so cool to see an episode of Seinfeld without any laugh track. An episode of Three's Company, no laugh track. An episode of Blossom. For all you Blossom fans out there. Six, huh? Was she great? Anybody? No laugh track. It would be eerie. Perfect strangers, growing pains. Who's the boss? No laugh track. No laugh track. Out of this world. Evie, put those fingers together and talk to your father in the sky. No laugh track. Small Wonder, the little robot. What was her name? I forget. But her neighbor was Harriet on Small Wonder. You remember that little girl? Picture that show without a laugh track. 227. Anybody ever watch 227? No laugh track. Now I'm wondering, did that trigger a lot of fake laughter? Were there just a lot of families in the living room waiting to hear the laugh track? Or it became a symbiotic relationship with the studio audience or canned laughter that they would just hit, hit, hit in post-production? Hit it. Hit it. Fonzie said, hey, hit it. Archie Bunker made a racist comment. Hit the laugh track. It's terrible. I think The Office was the first show I noticed where there was like no laugh track. It was like the new handheld camera with some of the characters talking into the camera and a little confessional aspect of the show. The Office, yeah, that changed it for me. And even though some people go, the British version was better. Shut the fuck up. The British version was better. There's never been a British version is better of anything. Sounds like I'm very anti-British. I'm not anti-British people, but British entertainment, I don't love it. Benny Hill, no thanks. Even Monty Python, no thanks. Mr. Bean, no thanks. What else? British humor, The Office. I gave it a chance. Ricky Gervais, he's not great. No thanks. What else has come from Britain that people love in the world of humor? Hmm, I can't think of any more. But if somebody wants to tell me one that they're like, yes, you would like this. Guess what I would say? Take a guess. Yeah. No, thanks. Here's another baseless observation. When I was a freshman in high school, 1995, 96, a senior in high school looked like a grown ass man or a grown ass woman, straight adult. I got on the campus of Terra Linda High. There were a few seniors who looked like they had a wife and kids and lived in an apartment and just came to campus when they wanted and I'd see them, i go, whoa, whoa, facial hair, whoa, puberty hit ya, whoa, muscles, muscle definition, and the women, oh my God, say they were only 18, but to my 14-year-old eyes, they were women, grown women, beautiful. And I always thought, you know, when we're seniors, we'll look like that. But then I looked around at my senior class, and I was like, nah, not really. We kind of just look like our typical group, but now, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, It's almost been 20 years since I was in high school. You old bastard. It's almost been 20 years. So now I see a senior on campus at a high school. They look like toddlers. They look so little. They're kids. They're kids. But they have a lot of confidence. I think that's when our confidence peaks as humans. Senior year of high school. 
For some people, it's weird. I know you would go, no, but that's an insecure era of life. That's an insecure phase of life. It doesn't show. These people are on top of the world. You get through all the milestones, freshman, sophomore, junior year, and now it's that year where you feel like you own the campus. That year before you become a little tiny speck of dust on a college campus, but you still have some time to feel like you have some powerful status, some authority. Seniors in high school, they have the attitude. Oh my God, the charisma, the bravado, the confidence. They should teach courses. Seniors in high school should teach classes on how to have confidence, how to just exude it. But to my eyes, to these 37-year-old eyes, little kids, they just look like kids. None of them look like those seniors from Terra Linda in 1995-96 when I was looking up at them. There was a guy named Mike. I remember him. Mike looked like he was 40 years old. Mike Lanzi. Nobody knows that name. Maybe some of you do. Actually, who's my listenership? Probably just my friend. So yes, you know who I'm talking about. He actually rented a room from my best buddy, Josh Friday, and his mom. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Josh Friday's mom had a room for rent, and one of the seniors in high school rented it. So we would come home, and he'd be playing Jaws on Nintendo 1, the original Nintendo, upside down, having a dip. Sometimes he would even drink half of his 40-ounce and just roll it down the hall, and we would grab it. That's a true story, and I feel like that happened a lot. Nobody questioned him. He was a senior in high school, living alone, Renting a room from the Fridays. You know, it didn't matter. He's allowed to dip. He's allowed to have a 40 ounce of malt liquor anytime he wants. He wants to play Nintendo upside down on the couch. We, the 14, 15 year old freshmen, would just admire him. Look at that Adonis. Look at that king, that grown man. Not realizing he's only 18. He's only 18. Look different. But that's still in my mind. It's so weird how the patterns that we form. Like if somebody was funny to you when you were 15 years old, and you saw them all of a sudden 20, 30 years later, they'd still be funny. There's just something in your brain if you saw them. Even if they weren't funny, there'd just be something that clicks for you that goes, you're funny, you're funny. And like, what are you referring to? You're like, well, you were funny in the 90s when I was 15. Oh, it was a long time ago. But that would still remain. Some of this stuff, the strong nostalgia, you can't shake it. And on the flip side, the negative side, if there was a bully, somebody that scared you when you were younger, doesn't matter if they became a nice adult, they'd always be scary always always if somebody bullied you back in the day on the old school playground and then you saw them and everybody's old with their kids and you saw them over at applebee's and you're putting down a pint of miller light and having your chicken wings and they come over you'd be like oh shit don't beat the shit out of me stay away they're like no just coming to say hi hey how are you have not seen you in years yeah this stuff just stays with you the residue of your upbringing, it's tough to shake. It's tough to shake. And it also plays a giant role in family issues. Holy shit. It's tough to shake the image of somebody from your earliest memories, your background, even as we evolved. And people can evolve. People truly can, I believe. Somewhat. You know, can we totally change? Probably not. But we can improve. We can improve. I feel like I will end this on a positive like that. And we can improve. You can tattoo that, by the way. On your arm right now. Tattoo the quote, we can approve. But just attribute me, dash Josh Rosenberg, 2018. This is episode 34. 34 already. When you hear the number 34, what do you think of? Charles Barkley? Maybe. Walter Payton? Perhaps. How about this name? Alan Amundsen. You know him? You know how every circle of friends or every neighborhood has one person, boy or girl, who's just better than everybody at sports? Better than absolutely everybody. Every group of friends has that one guy or girl. 
That was Allen. He wore number 34 when he played college football at the University of Oregon. Go Ducks. Quack, 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 quack. But he went to the wrong college. He should not have gone to Oregon. He should have gone to San Jose State, where I think he was almost going. Still a D1 school. He would have broken yards. Because in my mind, you see, when I think back, just like what I was talking about, to my earliest memories of a great athlete, outside of going to a Giants game, a Warriors game, a Niners game, it was Allen. I knew Allen when we were in fourth, fifth grade. He was clearly the fastest runner I've ever seen. So in my mind, he's Carl Lewis. He's Usain Bolt. Best rollerblader. Does that mean anything anymore? No, but he was. He was just the guy who, anything he does, he'll do it better than everybody. Bowling, he'll have the highest score. Ping pong, he's probably the best. Shoot pool, he's the best. We all know that person. Say it out loud if you're listening right now. Who's that person? Is it you? You egomaniac. It's you, isn't it? But Allen, he even got a look. He got a look, a little taste of the NFL with the 49ers. They brought him in for preseason camp. And when the Niners came down to Qualcomm Stadium to battle the Chargers in a meaningless fourth quarter of preseason football, I was there with my dad in the end zone, and he was on special teams, and he made a tackle about 15 feet away from us. And that moment was like Rudy. That moment was such a defining moment, not just for me, but I felt like our group of friends. Like, this was the guy. He wasn't going to have a big NFL career. Never did steroids. He was clean. He did play in NFL Europe, which is cool which is extinct now, but NFL Europe, we would actually watch those games. He'd be on punt return or kick return for the Hamburg Sea Devils, maybe. I don't know. But truly, the greatest athlete, at least of my age range that I ever saw, was him. Superstar. I figured, of course, when we were teenagers, he would have a Barry Sanders career. And I don't think he had a disappointing career, just didn't pan out on that level. All right, there's your Alan Amundsen update in 2018, because I feel like you needed that. But the number 34, even to this day, I think about seeing Alan. We used to go to his college games at the Rose Bowl when he would come down to play UCLA. Always had to back up NFL talent. Not okay. Not okay. All right, did you lose interest at this part? Did it get a little too much college football? A little too insider for you? Stay with me. All right, rate this on iTunes, won't you? Just rate it. Don't write a review. Don't waste your time. Just rate it. All the stars. All the stars in the galaxy. I appreciate you. You can also follow me on Twitter at jrosenberg957 and grab that book on Amazon, Suddenly Facing Reality. I have so much to plug. So much. I have a cookbook coming out. No, I don't. Nope, not yet. Okay, that's episode 34. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 